Let's open our scripture together to Genesis chapter 50. We've come to the end of a long road in our study of Genesis together. We could have left Genesis last week, but there was some unfinished business. Uh, except for one verse that kind of calls out to us at the end of Joseph's life that we didn't really mine. And I think that we, it deserves one more week of just mining that verse. And that is, of course, verse 20 in chapter 50. We're here at the climax of the Joseph narrative. His brothers, just for contextual reasons, his, his brothers have come to him after their father Jacob has died and they're terrified. They're terrified that this is going to be the time when Joseph pays them back for the life of suffering that they subjected him to. And that he's been waiting all these years until his father dies to get them back. Maybe they have heard the stories of their uncle, Esau, who had the same plan. So they fabricate some last words of Jacob to forgive them, figuring it will soften Joseph's heart, and even offer to indenture themselves to Joseph to pay him back for the suffering. And it's right here where we see Joseph's heart. Joseph says there, weeps when he hears his brothers come to him. As we said last week over the sorrow of the distrust of him over 17 years. This, by the way, is I think the seventh time that, that Joseph has wept in his narrative shows that he really had let them into his heart. And then he tells them, he makes a rhetorical statement, am I in the place of God? Joseph has learned that payback is God's business, not his business. So we're seeing a lot of maturity here in Joseph. But then he shows his truly transformed heart you look with me at verse 20, he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant for evil, God intended it for good. This morning we're going to take a look at this one verse and spend some time together examining how his sovereignty, the God's sovereignty, is used and interacts with the evil, with the suffering, with the difficulty, with the calamities in our own life. That he uses the suffering for good. Sinclair Ferguson has said that when he, when he was preaching on this text, we all ask the Joseph question at some point when that happens in our life. We all ask the Joseph question. 
And it's said many different ways, but it sounds something like this. Why did this happen to me? How could God let this happen? What possible sense could this disaster make in my life? Or it can sound like this sometimes. If God is good, how could he let this happen? Or what good could possibly come out of this? Whether it is evil and suffering in this world, when we're confronted with a cancer, genocide, hurricanes, rapes, fatal car wrecks, school shootings, earthquakes, sex trafficking, the institutionalized of murder of the weakest member of our race in abortion. Or if it's personal, a health care issue, a marriage that is in difficulty, a financial disaster, a divorce, an unexpected death of a loved one in your family. In a way, they're two different questions, but they're linked. They both ask and beg to ask the Joseph question. Why do these things happen? How could a good God let this happen? How could anything good come out of this? Now I realize it's not recorded for us in Scripture, but Joseph had obviously wrestled with this question to be able to say that to his brothers after 22 years. Perhaps it started right in the pit that they threw him in 22 years previously. Or during his years of servitude in Potiphar's house. I can, as I thought of this, I most certainly thought that when he was in that dungeon, after being thrown, after doing something righteous, being thrown in the dungeon, I, that's when I thought it all came crashing into him. He had a lot of time to ask the Joseph question, how could this happen to me? I did was right. I did, I did what was right, was moral, was ethical, what was good, what was godly, and here I am. Where is God in all this? I can hear him saying, not just in his mind, but out loud. And the Spirit led Joseph to one conclusion, a truth that we all have to grapple with, a perspective we all as believers need to have. And that is evil, suffering, disaster does come in, into our lives. It does. But God's good purposes always prevail. God's good purposes always prevail. And that's our outline for today. Evil exists, but God's good purposes always prevail. First, evil exists. Joseph says here, what you meant for evil. He says that. He acknowledges that evil had been done to him. He says, he's saying to his brothers that are coming to him, yes, you did evil to me. Yes, you made me suffer. You caused my suffering. His brothers did 
mean to hurt him. It's not an accident. In other words, Joseph did not deal with his brothers in a Pollyanna type of way, saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. No, it was really that bad. Nor did he just sweep it under the rug as some of us do. Oh, don't worry about it. No, worry about it. Think about what you did to me. What you meant for evil. No, he's calling a spade a spade. You did evil to me. You caused a lot of suffering in my life. Because of you, bad things did happen to me. And he confronted the fact that evil, suffering, difficulty, bad stuff happens in a life. And that's something that we have to face as well. Now, suffering falls into two different categories here. Understandable and incomprehensible. First, understandable. Some suffering in our lives is understandable. Some suffering in our lives, some difficulty in our lives is a consequence of our actions. And we can see that. We see this in Joseph's life. Part of the reason why Joseph... Why, why Joseph's brothers hated him so much is because he was a brat. He really was. When he was 16, 17, however old he was, if you go back to chapter 37, you can see this. He, he would tell on his brothers. We're not exactly told what he said, but it says there in, in I think, verse 2 or 3 that he went back to their father and gave him a bad report of the brothers. He also flaunted his favoritism. Yes, his father favored him and gave him this coat, and he made sure his brothers knew that. And he even used the dreams that God gave him sovereignly to show him his future, actually the future that he is now living. Those two dreams of the stars, sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him and the grain sheaves bowing down to him. He even used those dreams as a, as a prideful bludgeoning club against his, his brothers, didn't he? You're going to bow down to me. Why don't you start right now? And sometimes we have to look at our own sufferings and our own lives and honestly say, you know what, this is a consequence of my action. It's a consequence. If you speed and get a ticket... And that takes up your oil money for the month. You cannot ask the Joseph question. If you gamble and lose your retirement savings, you can't ask the Joseph question. If you sleep around and get an STD, you can't ask the Joseph question. In other words, they're understandable. It's fathomable. I get it. I understand that. But sometimes suffering is incomprehensible. My mother used to say, it's it's like a meteor hitting your life. (laughs) Remember 20 years ago, there was all this hype and all this worry. Do you remember this about a a meteor hitting the earth? You know, they used to call it an an extinction level event. Yeah? And it it spawned those movies like uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon. Remember that 20 years ago? 
Some suffering in your life is like that. A meteor hits. It's an extinction level event. Comes out of nowhere, not expecting it. And it devastates your life. With Joseph, it was, it was that interaction with Potiphar's wife. He was doing, he was going along, he was doing everything right by the book. And he lands in jail. These are the less explainable. You, you're going along, you're bopping along, and boom. These are the stage four cancer reports you get. Or the husband or the wife comes home one day. I've heard stories like this and say, you know, I just don't want to be married to you anymore. And when these things do happen, and they do, I want us to keep several things in mind. Maybe think deeply on these things, maybe as Joseph did as he was pondering the meteor that hit his life. We have to think deeply about sin. We have to think deeply about sin. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way God intended it. We have to keep that in mind as these meteors come screaming at us. That's what Genesis 3 is all about. Not only did we fall, but Romans tells us that all of creation fell with us. That means this world is broken. This world doesn't operate the way God created it to operate. That means that not only do trees lose their leaves, but relationships are broken. We've seen this through Genesis, haven't we? Fathers and mothers play favorites, brothers hate brothers, families get split, husbands and wives pitted against each other. Relationships are messy. Fall also means that cause and effect are warped. Cause and effect are warped. Joseph fled Potiphar's wife, yet he lands in a dungeon. He acted righteously, yet bad things happened to him. Jesus tells us this over and over again in such things as no, no servant is above his master. That's an application there. You'll do all the right things, brothers and sisters, and you'll suffer. You'll speak the truth, and you'll be persecuted. You'll work long and hard as unto the Lord, just as it says in Scripture, and you will not get that promotion. You will not get that job. Put it in fishing terms, and I am on thin ice here. You'll save someone's trap one day, and they will cut your line the next. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you and tests you, as though something strange is happening. I did everything right. Don't we act like that? Okay, I act like this. 
I did everything right. And this person still treats me like this. This situation didn't turn out that way. And I still act surprised. You live a righteous life and extinction level meteors will hit your life. That's the fall. That's the sin that we have to ponder. Secondly, we have to remember that Satan has authority here. Satan has authority. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. John writes about him in his first epistle, we know that we are of God. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world in John 12. Truth is, Satan has a certain amount of authority and power in this world right now. And that sometimes causes the suffering. We see this meted out in, in Job chapter 1, don't we? You know, when, when the evil one comes and, and says, listen, I can't touch Job because you have a hedge around him. I mean, we see God's sovereignty there, which we'll talk about in a minute. God says, okay, I'll take the hedge around away, but you can only go so far in Job's life. There is power that Satan has. He can only roam so far, though. It's like when I had a lead out here for Gigi. I'd hook her onto it, and she had a certain modicum of freedom within as far as that lead would let her go. Kind of how Satan is today. Satan can only roam so far do so much because finally we have to ponder and think about and keep in perspective God is sovereign. This is the last thing we have to think deeply about and keep in mind when our lives are devastated. This, is, this sometimes causes some of the deep thinking. Yes, we live in a fallen world where the evil one wreaks havoc, but God is sovereign. And he is sovereignly good. Which brings us to our second point. There is evil and it exists in this fallen world, but God's good purposes always prevail and here's where it gets sticky. Because God is sovereign, we know that from Scripture. Scripture is replete with this theme from beginning to end. God is sovereign. God's in absolute control. He's not limited. Nothing slips by him. He doesn't forget anything. The past, the future, is all the now. One of my favorite verses on this is Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore today, Moses says, and take it into your heart. And this is what I want us to do today. Take it into your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and earth below. There is no other. Declaration.
his sovereignty, to take that into our heart. I don't have time to expand on this, but only add that Yahweh is in absolute control. Thus he can and does repurpose the suffering in our life for good. That's what Joseph is is putting forth very plainly to his brothers, isn't he? Yeah, evil. Yeah, a lot of suffering. But God meant it for good. He got it. Paul wrote the Roman church the very same thing using different words and we know all things God works for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. God works towards good in all things, not some things. Not the little things, but not the meteor things. All things he's working towards good. God takes the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he works it for good. God sovereignly uses our suffering in our lives for good, and we struggle on two levels with this. First being, why does God even allow suffering? Right? You can't get around that. Why does God even allow evil if he is good? This, R.C. Sproul said before he died, is one of the hardest issues that Christianity has to deal with. In one, he said that even at the end of his life, he had no satisfying answer for. That's my way of saying, you're going to leave here unsatisfied. That's my way of saying, in a year as you plumb the depths of this, you're going to leave unsatisfied. That's my way of saying at the end of your life, you're going to say the same thing. Because this is what theologians call theodicy. How could a good God allow evil? How could he allow suffering? How could he allow devastation? How can he allow the meteors in our life? How could a good God allow that? Men have grappled with this question for thousands of years. Thousands of years. All the way back, ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. This is how he put it. Thinking through this logically with our mind. This is what the conclusions he came to. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? And this is where we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, because this is the drain that our flesh wants to take us down. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? The problem with Epicurus' thinking is that none of these categories are biblical. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is active in our lives, providentially. Yahweh is omnipotent. He knows everything. And he did not create the evil. 
that you're struggling with. But he uses it. On May 7th, 2000, one of my heroes, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, stood in his pulpit for the last time to speak about the cancer that ended up taking his life a month later. And here's what he said. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is God's sovereignty. That's not novel. We've talked about sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this cancer come into our lives, they're not accidental. It is not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by him. But what I've been impressed with mostly in my battle with cancer is something in addition to that. God is not only the one who is in charge, but God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewing of our mind, that is, how we think of things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Of course it is, he says. But the point is, is that it's good, perfect, and pleasing for you. If God does something in your life, he says, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. And that, brothers and sisters, is where you have to live. And that, brothers and sisters, takes faith. Because you're not going to think your way clear here. Otherwise, you end up right where Epicurus did. He's not God. But there's a second way we struggle. We struggle in seeing God's good purposes prevail, don't we? Sometimes we get a glimpse of those things. Sometimes by God's grace we're given the, 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 the grace to actually live through seeing the good. Sometimes that happens. But many times it doesn't. So what does, God, what does good look like is my question. So briefly, I'd like to offer three ways that we can see God's good purposes in our meteor strikes. Three perspectives that we need to have when navigating suffering when it comes into our lives. And the first is God uses our suffering for a greater purpose. That's what we see here Joseph saying. Right And the end of verse 20, he says, okay, yep, you did cause a lot of suffering in my life, 22 years worth, but God meant it for good. What is that good, Scripture says, to bring about that many people should be kept alive? Yeah, you did, you did some bad stuff to me, guys. But God had a bigger purpose for all that in my life. 
All that he went through, the pit, Potiphar's wife, forgotten in the dungeon, all led him to being able to save hundreds of thousands of lives, probably. Hundreds of thousands of lives. A greater purpose. He stored up in the seven bountiful years so that he could keep people alive in the seven drought years. That was the greater purpose for Joseph's 22 years of suffering. God uses his suffering to accomplish a much bigger purpose. You can just go down the list in Christianity of, of people that this is true of. My mind wandered to Martin Luther. Martin Luther had absolutely no ambition of starting a reformation, a revolution in the church. He had no ambition of that. When he tacked those 95 theses up there, he just wanted to start a conversation. But after he did, his life looked like a life on the run, hiding, people wanting to kill him, being persecuted for his faith, excommunicated from the church that he loved. Fits of depression, loneliness. Yet God used his suffering life for a much greater purpose. And we're living it here in little Southwest Harbor 500 years later. The gospel, the unadulterated gospel is preached. We don't have to pay indulgences and think that we're getting ahead with God. We go right to Christ and not to me for confession. We have to keep this in mind when difficulty or suffering, even a meteor strike hits our life. We have to keep this in mind. This takes discipline, brothers and sisters. Because it's so easy to let your mind go. There's a greater purpose could God have in this Whatever this is in your life, and we all have this is in our life. What greater purpose could God have? I th- my mind wandered to Pat Lewis this week. If you haven't visited her, I encourage you to. You know why? It's good for you. It's good for you to see how she's facing death. It encourages me. The meteor that hit her life is doing me good. God has a greater purpose in mind for all the suffering than just you. And that's our temptation. To spin around yourself. We, that great illustration, easy illustration of looking at a tapestry from underneath with all the tangled threads, all the different colors, all the threads hanging loosely, balled together, makes no sense. But you look from above. It's beautiful. Greater purpose. Totally makes sense. Secondly, God uses the suffering in our lives for a personal sculpting. He sculpts us. 
through suffering. This isn't anything new. God uses suffering to make us more like him. Again, we see this in Joseph. When we first meet Joseph, he is boastful, prideful, mean-spirited, selfish 17-year-old. You could probably add to those. After 22 years of suffering, path could have taken a bad turn, couldn't it? You know, I tell people, I told uh, Peter and Sarah as I was premar- doing premarital counseling with them, I said, you know, mar- going into marriage is like having a, a um, magnifying glass put on your life. The things that are gr- good become great. The things that are bad become pretty bad. And Joseph, being in that 22-year suffering, could have gotten really bad. Could have gotten really bitter, right? Could have really held that grudge. Brothers were kind of thinking fleshly, but that happens. He's waited 17 years to get us. This is going to be bad. But it didn't. It sculpted him in a totally different direction, didn't it? He's a different person, so different that his brothers are skeptical, so different that they don't believe 17 years of generosity and good treatment. They don't trust the change. I recently watched a program about a young man named Alex Honnold, who was the first person to free solo Yosemite's El Capitan. Free solo, I didn't know what that meant, but free solo, if you don't, means he climbed up El Capitan with no ropes, no harnesses, just him. I won't go into how I feel about that, (laughs) but that's what he did. My palms were actually sweating, seriously, as I was watching this, because they have the perspective of okay he doesn't he he has a little ledge that he's holding on to and then a thousand feet okay so literally my palms are sweating Arnold like all climbers could save time and tons of energy by just taking a helicopter to the top (laughs) good but his ultimate purpose isn't efficiency His ultimate purpose is conquest. Sure, he wants to reach the summit, but he desired to do it by testing his limits, deepening his character, his discipline, his resolve, his perseverance over the long haul. There's a parallel spiritually here, isn't there? Randy Alcorn writes, God could just create scientists, mathematicians, athletes, musicians, fully formed. He could do that. But he doesn't. He creates children who take on those roles over the long process. And in the same way, God doesn't make us fully formed and Christ-like when we become born again. He conforms us to the image of Christ gradually like a climber through tests difficulties, falls, and failures, bruises, and broken bones in order to deepen our character, our discipline, our resolve, our perseverance until, 
As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, we reflect the glory of God by transforming, being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. John Piper said, This is God's universal purpose for all Christian sufferings. More contentment in God, less satisfaction in the world. It's a great nugget right there. More contentment in God, less satisfaction in the world. Lastly, God uses our sufferings as a pathway to the cross. I was talking to Glenn last night about, I don't know how we got talking about World War II veterans and the bond that they make to each other. That's a bond that, that all soldiers have if they've been in the dirt and blood, as they call it. They have this deep bond because they serve together. There's an intimacy, a trust that is formed because of that. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Now listen to this. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. One pathway to knowing Christ is to suffer like him. One way to deepen your relationship with Christ is to suffer like he did. One way to trust Christ more through the meteor strikes of your life is to what John Piper calls the intimacy factor of suffering. The intimacy factor of suffering. So one perspective you must develop in your suffering is it can deepen your reflection and appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you suffer, allow it to remind you of Christ's sufferings and preach the gospel to yourself. When you're feeling all alone, share in the sufferings of Christ and remember how lonely it must have been upon that cross. When you feel rejected, share in the sufferings of Christ and remember the mocking and the sarcasm and the spitting and the hurtful words that were spewed out when he was hanging on the cross. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, I did everything right. I'm working ethically. I did things morally. And you suffer because that cause and effect is broken in this world? Share in the sufferings of Christ. And allow it to remind you of Christ, who was absolutely perfect, allowed himself to be called guilty and didn't speak back. When a meteor strikes your life, an extinction-level event happens in your life, have fellowship with Jesus Christ and remember and meditate on the meteor strike that happened to him. The full weight of God's wrath for our sins poured out on him. Meditate on that. 
and grow closer to your Savior. When it looks as if there is no good that can come out of that meteor strike, how could God, ask the Joseph question, how could God possibly bring good out of this? Through something as ugly and as hopeless as what I'm in right now. Allow your mind to remember the cross. How ugly and hopeless the cross was. The Savior dies. But unless that seed falls and dies, it won't bring about the salvation of many. That's just what Joseph was saying. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the depths that it takes us to and the reality that it brings us to, the mirror it holds up in our lives. Spirit, use that now. In Jesus' name, amen.